Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. How is a murderer who forced a woman to marry him called a man after God's own heart? For all of the applicable context to Psalm 51, this is the context of Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is not the story of David. Sometimes I almost think it's too beautifully written. Instead, it's a measure in the symphony of God's grace. It's a grace that offends our sensibilities, and it's a grace that every single one of us desperately needs. My name is Steve. I often teach the youths in, uh, in the back room. Today, we're actually going to explore a conversation that we had there from a few Sundays ago. Um, if you're wondering which of those teachers I am, if your kids are ever like, oh my gosh, Sunday school was so fun, we got to play dodgeball, that wasn't me. Um, if they said we really overdwelled on the plot structure of Frozen 2, uh, that, that was actually my week. Um, we're going to explore Psalm 51 today while spending almost no time looking directly at it. Uh, instead, we're going to see the brush strokes of encountering God to begin to understand the setting for David's poem. The beauty of this poem isn't David's words, but it's, it's the redemptive and powerful God that he's writing to. And I think we lose the power of Psalm 51 when we become infatuated with David as a king and not with God's power to redeem him as a sinner. Our teaching today is really similar to a conversation um, like I mentioned a couple weeks ago. Uh, the only difference is, is I'm, I'm going to talk the whole time. Normally it's more of a discussion. Uh, we're going to cover just a little bit more ground and I'm not going to learn anything about how to beat the new Zelda game this time. Um, that, is, that is how I look at my Switch the entire time that I'm playing. That's just like a reflection of me. So we're going to explore three encounters with God. Jacob, the rich man, and finally our own in Hebrews 4. We're going to seek to understand these encounters so that the truth can set us free to experience relationship with God in a deeper way. Our first encounter with God is from the story of Jacob, and we come across it in Genesis 32. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of Yabok. What a relatable passage. We will escape to the New Testament really soon, guys. Um, after he sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Penel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Penel, 
and he was limping because of his hip. There's so much depth to the story of Jacob, but at the exact same time, there's this really frustrating lack of depth to the story of Jacob. Jacob is a twin uh, who was born second by just a few scant seconds, and those few scant seconds define Jacob's entire life up until Penel. He spends every ounce of his energy either trying to steal back the blessing of the firstborn by any means possible, or dealing with the consequences of trying to steal back the blessings of the firstborn by any means possible. And this is kind of the lack of depth that I'm talking about. Jacob literally just chases his blessing over and over and over again like a wily coyote of the Bible. Jacob may be more hooked on his own power as a means than any other person in Scripture. Jacob wrestles with God because he has wrestled, deceived, and lied in every possible place to get what he believes is rightfully his. Jacob has decided that he is going to be self-made. Jacob is the Detroit versus everybody of the Bible. And this has disastrous and sometimes comical results for Jacob, who is compared to a snake, which is never favorable because snakes are horrifying, but it's like really bad when just a few chapters ago, Satan was a literal snake. And Jacob deceives and connives and finally wrestles with God for a blessing. But this is key. It's a blessing he's already been promised. Jacob believes in his whole heart that God has been against him since birth. Since even a few seconds before his birth. That by the very nature of the timing of his birth, God has abandoned him. And Jacob believes that all of these consequences that he brings upon himself are instead wrought by God. But Jacob, having already been promised this blessing, wrestles with God. And that's why when he's wrestling with God, Jacob is actually demanding his blessing by name. He's so myopically and singularly focused on this one blessing that even wrestling with God, it's all that he can think about. And he's so convinced that the only way forward is his own strength that he's actually willing to wrestle with God himself And I believe that he knows what the potential consequences of that are. Jacob loses. And if you know literally any single thing about God, that is not the most surprising outcome to the wrestling match. But Jacob is wounded in the fight. Um, The Bible says he walks with a limp for the entire rest of his life. His name is changed to Israel, and he's never the same. So how does Israel view the place where he's permanently wounded. As a blessing. It's a place he returns to, limping, over and over. The French philosopher Simone Weil asks, isn't it the greatest possible disaster when you are wrestling with God not to be beaten? The two contexts for our encounter with God I take from Jacob's wrestling match are this. The first is that God is never going to believe the lie that we're on our own, and his grace will never relent to be beaten. The second is that wrestling with God may hurt, but being beaten is beautiful. 
When we encounter God, we have the luxury of knowing that we will leave beautifully broken, whether we arrive that way or not. God won't let us win. And when he conquers our hearts, we may be wounded, but we'll return to it as a place of blessing. Susan asked the non-French philosophers, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, is Aslan quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous in meeting a lion. And Mrs. Beaver responds, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. And he's the king, I tell you. Our second encounter with God comes 1,800 years later in Mark 10. When a rich man, who almost certainly knew the entire story of Jacob, approaches Jesus with a question. Verse 17 says, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. A lot in this story is made of the impact of wealth on the journey with Christ and on walking with the Lord. And rightfully so, but I think that emphasis actually misses a really important story. This is the story of a man before a savior. I'm first blown away by the faith of the rich young man. I mean, he approaches Jesus with what appears to be reckless abandon. But it isn't abandon. And even though that's a difference that I don't immediately recognize, it's not lost on Jesus for a second. And as I reflect on my own self, like that's not surprising to me that I don't recognize the difference. Because the difference between eagerness and abandon and brokenness, those are differences that I almost never recognize in myself. I actually don't think the rich young man does either. David doesn't. In Psalm 139, he implores, search me, O God, and know my heart. But let's just table that. Let's say enough about the anonymous rich guy, and let's talk a little bit more about the God of the universe who's in human form. Jesus looks on him and loves him. He searches and knows his heart, and loves him. Even an account of rebuke is just seasoned with that familiar grace that we taste and see that God is good. Jesus looks on him and loves him. And it's just another story in the Gospels that the presence of Jesus turns into a love story. The rich man goes away sad. A really interesting question came up um, when we had this conversation with the youth a couple weeks back. 
Was the rich man sinful for walking away sad? Isn't it interesting that this story has no resolution? It's almost like the story has already been told. That the story we have is of a man who is deeply, deeply loved by the living God and given a truth that shakes him to his core. He's wounded, and honestly, maybe forever. But he has this opportunity to change clothes from being the rich man to just being an anonymous man whom Jesus loved. He's given a new name if he'll take it. Would there be anything sweeter than to just be a nameless person whom Jesus loves? I imagine that the rich man doesn't run around heaven talking about the wealth that he once had. But instead, I think he would tell any one of us who would listen, I'm the guy who Jesus loved in that one story. To be loved by God himself is its own identity. And there's just no next thing that stands up to that. It's the same call and identity that Jesus places directly before us. As Father Greg Boyle says, we're asked to lock on to the singularity of that love that melts us. And it doesn't melt who we are, but who we are not. But melting hurts. Sometimes the very prospect of it sends us away sad. For what it's worth, I don't think the sadness was a sin response. I don't know how any of us can bring our own selves to accept the command to go and sell everything we have to give up on every one of the devices that we've believed in to be a provider in our life. Instead, it's grace that teaches our hearts to fear, and it's grace our fears relieve. David doesn't write Psalm 51 because he independently realizes his sin and repents. He is brought painfully by a grace of God that his heart fears. He comes before the throne of God with a prayer for forgiveness, renewal, and the joy of his salvation. But it is not from a position of strength. So what do we know about the throne room where David petitions God? That's the final place of our setting. If that's really where we're going to dwell, let's talk a little bit about Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace for help at our time of need. We're going to focus on that last verse. And and for some people, this is going to be one of those, like, the book was better moments where the movie throws out your favorite character and you're like, what? Um, If my mom is at home watching this, she's like, you're skipping the high priest in Hebrews? She's just, like, thrown her coffee mug through the TV screen. Don't worry, there's way more coffee. Um, 
if it was January, we'd probably take some time to like actually talk through the high priest, but it's really nice out, so we'll just, we'll save it for the winter when we need some extra sermon time. Um, I just want to focus on the throne room, actually. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace for help in our time of need. Hebrews is written with deep referential knowledge. It assumes a common knowledge base. Like when people say, you're such a Rachel. Or um, when their kids will be like, sus at a trash can. This is like a culmination of four chapters and an overwhelming exclamation point from the author that requires a knowledge of throne rooms that just flat out doesn't persevere in the democracy era. So we are going to spend what I will call a truly uncomfortable amount of time talking about throne rooms until we can really dwell in that moment and appreciate this crescendo of Hebrews 4.16 and the beauty and the throne of grace together. One of the tourist attractions in the entire world that I least recommend is the Palace of Versailles. If you have never been to the Palace of Versailles, it is 720,000 square feet and 2,300 rooms. Um, I've included my first apartment up there for scale. Um, It is seven one-thousandths of the size of the Palace of Versailles. All of the 2,300 rooms are uncomfortably hot and filled with the exact number of people that it takes for you to like dig your elbows into your rib cage and hope that no one bumps into you while they're taking a picture. It is an incredible place when tourists are not there. I don't know how to get there when that is happening. Just stay in the gardens. A tour of the palace includes stops in the Salon of Hercules, the Salon of Abundance, the Salon of Venus, the Salon of Mercury. I pause here to remind you, this is a Christian nation. They, they just, you can't do that naming scheme if there's one God, right? There's 2,300 rooms. Um, there's the Salon of Mars, the Salon of Apollo, and the Salon of Diana. Like all Bravo programming, the whole thing is so ostentatious and redundant that it kind of makes you feel a little bit nauseous. And if you're wondering how they could afford all this... Well, stick with your French history for a couple more years because they absolutely could not. And I read those so fast and no one was asking you to move in a language you don't understand so that they could take a picture. No one was hitting you in a shin with a selfie stick, glaring at you like it's your fault. So we're just going to hang out in one room for a second. Water break, thank you. The Salon of Hercules was meticulously crafted over 26 years. It houses a Venetian painting that in TV sizing is 414 inches. The ceiling took three years to paint and is the largest canvas painting in Europe. It is beautiful, gigantic, ornate, and entirely overwhelming. And if you're thinking, this is a really normal amount of France facts, I hope there's more, just wait. When you approach the throne room at Versailles, you will walk through the gallery of battles. It is 16,899 square feet, containing 33 paintings of victorious French battles. 
the largest room in the palace is a shrine to wartime triumph where anyone approaching the throne has to wait. What is the point of all this? Why? Why bankrupt an entire nation to build this palace? The point is that by the time you've reached the throne room, you are so overwhelmed by the wealth and might of France that you don't dare ask for anything. That by the time you get before the king, you just fall on your knees and beg for mercy. Because that's what a throne room does. And you might be saying, surely, Steve, you realize this example is anachronistic and that the author of Hebrews couldn't have possibly been thinking about the palace of Versailles when writing Hebrews 4.16, which is correct, but the French actually didn't invent this idea. In 721 BC, when Assyria took the 10 tribes of the northern kingdom into captivity, leaders of Israel, like every other conquered nation, would be made to wait for hours in room after hall after room after hall as they progressed to the throne room. Assyria's walls to the throne room were covered with nothing but death and destruction of their enemies. The final picture here is a little bit of foreshadowing. That's, that's a lion's den, which we know how that one ends. The throne room of Assyria was built simply to terrify. It was built so you would beg for mercy and offer your nation as a captive slave state just to avoid becoming another panel on the wall. And this brings us to the throne of our God, the throne of grace. God does not lead us through lavish 19th century wealth. He does not lead us through depictions of horror. Instead, he brings us into this first room with no one else there and just lets us sit and look around. And this is the one where Jacob wrestles with God himself and is blessed. You can just look up at the ceiling and wonder. And this next one, a murderer leads Israel out of captivity. This next room is the one where Jesus says, then neither do I contemn you after asking those without sin to cast the first stone. We keep going. This is the room where the man who denies Jesus Christ three times becomes the rock upon which the entire church is built. This is the Savior on the cross forgiving them for they know not what they do. This is the road to Damascus, the woman at the well, the people who have loved us when we absolutely didn't deserve it. There's a room in my life that I sit in of my grandpa singing Great is Thy Faithfulness at what conventional musicians do not consider a key or a volume appropriate to music (laughs) over and over again. And I just, I, I love that room. I sit in a room of my mom reading the Chronicles of Narnia to me as I fall asleep. And finally, when we approach the throne room of God, we fall to our knees and we weep before the unfailing grace of God. 
We stand before a great cloud of witnesses as his highest melts away our lowest. We are not kings. We are not rich men. We are not adulterers. We are not poor. We're simply broken and beloved in front of our God. Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.